Well, I'm Kenny White. I'm the campus pastor, and uh, I want to welcome you. Thank you for engaging, and uh, let me introduce myself a little bit to you, because there's, there's maybe a little bit of a shift that has happened in my soul that I'm kind of embarrassed, but I feel like since we're all close, I can share this, and, and that's this. Uh, I haven't always been a cat person. Yeah, but in recent days... We have this cat that's fat as butter. He makes Garfield look small. You know, he's, he's huge. He's like a panther uh, that just rolls. He can't even walk. You barely see his legs. Uh, but he, this, this cat that we have, he loves to be around people. And so we'll go in the living room, and he'll just lay on the floor and, and just enjoy time. You can't pick him up. He doesn't want to be held. I appreciate that. Uh, I prefer that. Uh, but... He just loves us, and it's weird. Over the course of the last month, there's, he started practicing this thing, and that is when I come down the stairs in the morning, he's waiting at the bottom, and at first, I thought it was to trip me and try to kill me because that's how I think cats really operate, <laughs> and uh, it wasn't, though. He waited. I got my foot fam- firmly planted, and he just started like purring and rubbing into it and then he'd run ahead of me a little bit and then he'd come back and purr and run and it well I thought that's kind of weird what I found out though is that he was trying to direct me he wanted me to go somewhere which it won't be a surprise when I tell you he wanted me he wanted to show me his bowl his food bowl so I would go in there here is the crazy part it was full like there was still food in it. This fat cat had, I don't know if he figured out how to get more food or what happened, but he, he had food in his bowl. And what he would do, what he does is he jumps up in, onto this shelf where the bowl is and he starts eating and then he looks up at me and then he eats some more. He's like, I just didn't want to eat alone. <laughs> Thanks for being here with me, Kenny. You know, it's a, one of those deals. Anyways, as I was thinking about this goofy cat, I started to realize that we're a lot like that. That when you think about Thanksgiving, the food for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for New Year's, like, yeah, we love food and we have some particulars that we want to have or want to see, want to eat at those meals. But really, it's about not being alone. It's about being together with some other people. It's about having relationship around this meal and knowing how, how, what our relationship is and what that relationship looks like and, and, and having that type of fellowship. Like, that's what it's about. I learned that from my cat, which is why, again, maybe I like cats more than I realized. But more specifically, it's reminded me of the scriptures. Uh, sometimes we think of meals independently almost like they're uh, secular in nature, but they're not. They're, they're sacred. And you may be thinking about that, the meal as sacred. Uh, okay, so there's going to be a day for those who are found in Christ that you're going to have the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's going to be awesome. There'll probably be Oreo cookies there, I think. I don't know what else is going to be there, but good stuff. And then you might be thinking of even Jesus. He offered uh, the, the disciples, he engaged them in what we call now the Lord's Supper, this meal, it's sacred. But if we would have eyes to see, we might also recognize that that, that meal started in the garden. And there was a meal that was taken, that took place 
when Adam and Eve decided to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And and when they ate of that, they participated in a meal and they kept God out of that meal. He wasn't invited to it. He wasn't a part of that. And in that moment, some things occurred, some significant things. For one, there was a chasm all of a sudden between God and humankind in a way that didn't exist up to that point. That, that, that relationship was supposed to be together. It was now broken. Additionally, there was something else that occurred. But up to that point, humankind was supposed to reflect God, be image bearers. And though we still are image bearers and that, that part didn't change, but how we look like God, that, that's changed. It's contorted a little bit. It's skewed. It, eh, kind of can see it, but not really. Well, maybe. There's this view of who we are as image bearers that was changed because of that meal. And another thing that was pretty significant is that when Eve took of the fruit and she ate it, in essence, she was saying, you know what, God? I define what is good and what is evil. And Adam participated in that as well. I define what is good and what is evil. The rule of humankind came in in a way that was never supposed to happen. And it all happened in that first meal. And if we would have eyes to see ears to hear, and a heart to understand today, uh, we may see that God in his movement and in his very presence is trying to take us back to the table. And in taking us back to the table, there's a picture of restoration that occurs. I wonder if we can see that today as we move into a new series called Majestic. And in many ways, what you'll see is the majesty of God and the humility all displayed in front of us. That's the point and the picture. And today we're going to look at, at uh, the divinity of Jesus, his divine nature, an, an aspect that we don't always look at. We'll be in Matthew chapter 1 in just a few moments. And as perhaps you're turning there, let me set the stage. There's going to be what we will see is a prophecy. And the, the prophecy is that his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And we're going to explore that together as we also eventually participate in a meal. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we do praise you. We thank you, O Lord, that you came in the flesh and dwelt among us. That, Jesus, you are the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't hold back your divinity on our account. That you are fully God, fully man, and we see this displayed throughout the scriptures, and it matters. And, Lord, because it matters, we are transformed and invited into a meal together. Not that this food is what fixes things, but you fix it. And you bring us back to the table. And so, Lord, thank you. Be exalted and be lifted up. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand as we seek you and your word today. And, Lord, I I would also pray that you would hide us behind the cross of Calvary, that your words would be clear, uh, that that mysterious presence in our midst would be realized And Lord, that transformation would occur even today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
We're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. If you go ahead and turn there, we're going to look in verse 18 and following. And this is the revelation of Jesus. This is who Jesus is, this unveiling of God in the flesh, according to Matthew. And so uh, we have already, up to this point in the scriptures, we've already seen his lineage and why that's important. We could spend sermons on that matter. But up to this point, uh, Matthew is getting ready to now reveal this Jesus and how he came. And there are so many things that are being addressed in these first mm, 20 to 30 years after, uh, after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, we'll get into that as we go. But let's jump into Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 is where we'll begin. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to get it out. Get your highlighter, pen, underline, highlight, never mark stuff out of the Bible. (laughs) Super bad, don't do that. But uh, highlight, underline, make notes off to the side, that's great. We're in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Here we go. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You, you see the problem, right? Like, uh, we maybe are so familiar with this story that w- we miss the issue. The issue, of course, is that there is this man who is to be married to this woman. And while they are apart, not being together in any sort of intimate fashion, she becomes pregnant. That's a problem. We see a little bit of Joseph's character here, though. Instead of publicly humiliating her, he's willing to pull away. In fact, he, he's going to do everything kind of uh, behind closed doors so nobody knows. There's no, there's no shame. What I'm saying right now is Joseph doesn't know that God has uniquely blessed Mary to be the giver of life to God in the flesh. And so this is where we're at. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Which means God with us. God with us. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Sometimes when we consider that name, it almost comes across like a title. Oh, it's God with us almost flippantly. But the fact that God showed up in the flesh is very significant and has a lot of impact on us, but only if we have eyes to see it. God with us. A fair question to ask is this, so what? (laughs) So what? God's with us. So what? What does that mean? Why does it matter to me? That's a fair question. And to, to answer that, Uh, we have to dig in a little bit and go, okay, God with us. Let's focus on this deity portion. Let's look at Jesus as God. We're going to ask some questions like, is there any evidence that Jesus is God? C.S. Lewis had a a really interesting uh, phrase that that he shared. 
Uh, it's that Jesus is either Lord or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. Those are the options. And he's combating a common issue. And the issue is this, that people will often say, I can respect that Jesus is a great prophet. I, I can respect that he is a good teacher. But God, mm, I don't know about that. And so what C.S. Lewis is combating in this is he's saying, that's actually not on the table. <laughs> he, he's either Lord, God, or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. Because for him to be a good teacher and teach that he's God, that's not okay. Uh, for, for him to be this uh, excellent moral teacher but tell us that salvation is only found through him and he's God in the flesh, that doesn't work. And that's the emphasis that uh, C.S. Lewis gives. Uh, by the way, I want to make you aware of this, and you all are the first people to know this. January 8th, you can write it out. Our very own Rick Allen will be sharing uh, a, a skeptic's journey. Uh, it's, it's really his story, how he came to Christ uh, not believing that Jesus is Lord. I'm not going to give too many details, but I will tell you this. You're going to get some tools, some resources uh, that will help you to better understand your faith and to defend it. Uh, it'll be very encouraging. If you're one of those people that's kind of on the fence, like, mm, mm, I'm kind of interested, but I don't know if I can go there with Jesus, this is a great event for you to come and be at. Again, January 8th, uh, 9 o'clock to 1 o'clock, that's a Saturday. You'll see some more details coming up and on our website, but want to invite you out to that. Jesus is God in the flesh, and it matters. And there is evidence that Jesus is God. And we're going to see it from his testimony in word and action. We're going to see it in eyewitness accounts. And we'll see it in the resurrection itself. Is there evidence that Jesus is God? The following passages are not on the screen. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to follow along. Uh, a couple of places that we're going to go is in Matthew or I'm sorry, in John chapter 8, and then also in Matthew chapter 8 and Mark chapter 4 will be some of the passages we'll highlight. The first one is found in Jesus' words. Jesus says he is God. Now, a lot of times we'll, we'll get some challenge, some pushback on this. Oh, did Jesus ever claim to be? Yeah, actually he did. He did many ways, but I'm going to show you the most blatant one. And it's found in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 58, there's this big debate that's going on. How important is Jesus really? And they, they push back and they said, how do you know all these things? You're not yet 50. How would you even know? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's using a phrase, I am. It's a phrase that is used of the, the proper name or covenant name of God in the Old Testament. When he says, I am, it infuriates the religious leaders. They immediately charge him for blasphemy. You can't go around saying that kind of stuff, that you're God. They understood that he was saying he was God. There, there's a, a cult that goes around and they knock on doors sometimes. And they, they have a particular uh, theological bend. And one of those bends is that uh, Jesus is a God, not God, not Yahweh. He's a God, they'll say. Well, uh, 
my argument to them was that's, that's not true for many reasons without getting technical. I'll just use this passage. And I said, Jesus said he was God. And they said, well, he said he did say he was God. But is that what he believed? And, and I said, well, well, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Uh, do you think that Jesus was dumb? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Because Jesus said, I am. He uses the proper name of God right there. And the, the officials, the religious leaders push back on that and they want to kill him. Why didn't he just go, oh, wait a minute, you misunderstood me. Sorry about that. I slipped. Uh, he didn't do that because that's, he meant he was Yahweh. Uh, that's what he meant. It was very, it's very clear from the context. Uh, Jesus has some other subtle things we'll not get into, but he uses his words and identifies himself as God. If, if he's lying to us, that's, that's mean. If he's a lunatic, that's sad. But I want to suggest he's Lord because it's not just his words, it's also his actions. It happens in a few different places. Uh, One of those places is in Matthew chapter 8. Another one is in Mark chapter 4. It's the same account, but I'll read the uh, Matthew chapter 8 account. Jesus has authority and power in ways that normal people don't. I don't know. I I mean, personally, I have never walked on top of water that wasn't frozen. Never happened. Uh, I've never ordered weather to do stuff. Even our weathermen get it right like half of the time, and they, they get reports and stuff. Watch what Jesus does, though. This is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 uh, through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves as he was asleep. Jesus was asleep during this. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose And rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Jesus has authority over the weather. That is something that is uniquely attributed to God, not to man. If ever weather changes, if ever there are different patterns, I can think of a couple of times in scriptures where, where this comes up, it's always directed to God, right? It's a, it's a prayer request. Jesus is rebuking them. He's taken a position of authority, uh, very specifically uh, an authority over uh, the winds and the waves. In Matthew chapter 9, there's another situation Uh, starting in verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and read this. It's uh, verses 1 through 8 because this is significant. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic man lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic man, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Underline that. That's a big one. Your sins are forgiven? Who forgives sin? Well, that's, again, uniquely attributed to God in the New Testament uh, at this time. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, what do you, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? But that you may know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. God is, or Jesus is doing something uniquely attributed to God. He can forgive sin. Not just forgive sin, but he can also heal people. Jesus is not a lunatic, and he's not a liar. He is Lord. Now, there's another situation that I think is very important for us to recognize. As, as Scripture is, is um, being produced in the first century, and as it's being circulated, they're living in a time where uh, people were still alive from the event that occurred. Here's what I'm saying. They're communicating that Jesus rose from the dead. And there are people that are alive and there that if he didn't rise from the dead, they could have called him out on it. Because actually, I was a guard at that tomb, and that didn't happen. Uh, I was there all night. It's still sealed. Here's the tomb. There's the body. Could have done that easily. You might be thinking, well, what about the disciples? Couldn't they have done it? Well, maybe, but they all gave their life. Uh, it doesn't make sense, does it, that, okay, they would go and steal a body, hide it away, not tell anybody, and then be threatened to death, their families threatened to death, and then keep that secret. Uh, that doesn't seem likely. Jesus is Lord. He's God in the flesh. Uh, a passage that I would take you to is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A great passage. Uh, many things are being addressed in the church in Corinth. Sometimes people will say to me, Kenny, I just want to get back to the early church. I want to I have that kind of faith. And I'm like, which one? Corinth? That's a bad one to model. Don't do that. Uh, my point is, church has always been filled with people. And we mess things up sometimes. Praise the Lord that there is a God who loves us and gives us his word that can help us to realign with, uh, with what the truth is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Uh, Paul is communicating that his, his story, this story of Jesus' resurrection can be found out. Like, go ask someone who is there. Jesus uh, appeared to over 500 people, Go ask somebody. Go talk to them. It is really clear that the eyewitness accounts point us to the fact uh, that Jesus is God. And let's not forget this final piece. Uh, we see it in uh, John chapter 20, especially in 21, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he was alive. People saw him. Uh, he walked amongst us afterwards. There is a resurrection uh, that is something unique. I've been to a lot of funerals, never seen anybody raised. Uh, never seen anybody raise themselves. Like, that's different in Scripture, too. Jesus laid down his life, and he took his life back up. 
Why? Because he had authority. Why? Because he's God. He's God in the flesh. It's significant. But you still might be asking the infamous question, so what? So what? Big deal. Jesus is God in the flesh, okay? Uh, He is God with us. Uh, He is clearly God. We see it in his testimony, with his words, with his actions. We see it in eyewitness account. There's this resurrection. That's great. But so what? Let me suggest this. That from the time of the garden and throughout history, God is at work. And a part of his work is restorative. To restore us back. Because in the garden is a place of life. Not because it's the garden, but because it's in the presence of God. And it's all about restoring us back to that relationship with him. It was broken in the garden And then we followed suit. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I have, you have, we have, we're broken. The relationship in the garden is broken. The responsibility that we had given to us in the garden has been broken. And the rule of God has been broken. And we see that all. God shows up. He shows up in human history, taking this finite role in this and this clothing of humanity. Uh, But he's still God. And you say, well, I don't understand it. Join the club. Right? I mean, it's a mystery. That's the reality. We're saying that there is an infinite God, infinitely wiser than we are. It stands to reason. There are going to be some things about him we can't explain. Perhaps most things about God we can't explain. So with that in mind, Let's consider this. God is returning us to the garden. One passage that's really interesting is found in John. It's in John chapter 20. And I'll tell you why it's interesting. Because immediately following the resurrection, uh, Jesus appears to Mary. And I believe, I think the scriptures teach that the author of scripture, though it's written by people, the author is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enabled people to Uh, write God's words. And so because that's true, I believe that these are God's words, and they're very purposeful. Watch this. Watch it closely (coughs) as we read this. Watch this subtle phrase that is thrown out there. This is what it says. Jesus said to her, this is after the resurrection in in the garden tomb, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. It's a subtle message. I I think it's just subtle uh, that Jesus is thought to be the gardener because it's in the garden where everything is restored. And you might be saying, well, yeah, it's in the tomb. Maybe. But John is provoked by the Holy Spirit to speak this. To put something in our mind. And for the first century hearers, perhaps they would have thought of the tomb. But more specifically, they would have thought of the garden. That place where Adam and Eve had the first meal separate from God. They didn't invite him. In not inviting him, the relationship was broken. Because the relationship is broken, the responsibilities that were uniquely given to Adam and Eve are misunderstood The image of God isn't clearly seen. 
and the rule of God isn't lived out. The gardener. God is with us. God is with us. And this chasm has been crossed. It's been crossed by God to us. (laughs) To bridge us back to God. It's not something that we worked to do. We couldn't do it. We tried that. It didn't work out real well. Uh, At best, the law showed us that we come up short. But God was willing to come in the flesh and join us and build a bridge, the cross, right across that chasm that we could join him. In doing so, Jesus is restoring a relationship. Can you think of just before Jesus was betrayed? Remember the story? They're in the upper room, right? And he has this bread, and he breaks it, and he gives thanks. And he has a cup, and he blesses it, and he gives thanks, and he offers it. God in the flesh invites us to a meal. This meal doesn't save us. The bread, uh, that doesn't save us. It's, it's bread. <laughs> the cup, the juice, that doesn't save us. It's juice. But what it represents and what it identifies and what it takes us to is pretty significant. So significant that when Paul is writing about it in 1 Corinthians, he says that there are people who don't take this very seriously and they're falling asleep. And if you don't understand what I mean when I say they're falling asleep, I mean they're dying. Because they're not taking it seriously. That was, that's pretty significant. What we see then is this meal with Jesus going back to the table. It, we, are, we are being invited to something that we rejected him from in the garden. A relationship. There's this relationship that we see restored. We see responsibility restored in a unique way, that we as God's image bearers are being restored and transformed more and more to be like him. Positionally for sure, but also progressively as we learn to be obedient to the Lord. And finally, he restores the rule, God's rule. In the garden, what happened? You know what? I think I'm going to decide. I'm going to define what is good and evil. That's what happens in the garden. This restoration puts things back into place. You know what, Adam and Eve? You know what, Kenny? You know what? And insert your name. I I actually know what is good and evil. And in faith, I'm going to ask you to follow me to what is good and to stay from what is evil. And we see it in this wonderful picture at communion. If we have eyes, again, you might be thinking, so what? So what do we do with that? Let's go back. Let's go back to the garden. That's the challenge. See, there was a meal that happened that separated us, but there's a meal that restores us. I'm not talking, again, I can't, I want to be so clear on this matter. We are not talking about Uh, salvation through the elements. That is not what we mean. What we are saying is that there is this beautiful picture that Jesus has painted and invited us to that is restorative. As if this didn't happen, you are now invited into a meal that should have happened. 
And Jesus breaking bread with us is an invitation and a reminder what it would take. It would take his life being given up that we could have life. And we drink of the fruit of this cup, reminding, being reminded that it's God in the flesh, that he came and dwelt among us, that he was willing to give his life, that we could have life. That it's not just covering sin, that we have to constantly come before this over and over again with the right sacrifices, but that it's taken sin away. And we're invited to that place uniquely and specifically by God in the flesh When the scripture says, Emmanuel, God with us, it matters. It matters big time. It mattered to them in the first century, and it matters to us today. And the challenge that we have even today is what will we do with it? Will we allow God to restore, or will we do our own thing? We, um, in evangelical Christianity, sometimes we uh, talk a lot about the sinner's prayer. And I love the sinner's prayer because it's a, it's a moment in time where you can say, I know that I know that I know that I received Jesus as my Savior. But what I don't like about the sinner's prayer is it's not the sinner's prayer that saves us. <laughs> it's still faith. It's the grace extended to us by that faith. It's the work of Jesus at the cross. And it's transformative. There should be a change. So today as we uh, participate in communion together, uh, I want to challenge you to ask yourself some questions. Am I a follower of Jesus? If so, you are welcome to participate in communion. That's why these stations are out. But there is a little bit of a catch, and that's that we ask the Spirit of God to examine our heart, to illuminate our hearts. Is there any unconfessed sin? And it might just look like this. It may be this simple. Lord, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. Lord, I, I have, wa- I have uh, done my own thing and I'm sorry. I've missed the boat, Lord. Forgive me. It might be that simple. It may even be more specific. Maybe you've sinned against somebody in your own home. Confession that needs to occur. Request for forgiveness may need to occur. And then we're free to participate. It's as if God is calibrating our own hearts to go back to the garden. And that's the challenge for us. As we, as we uh, pray, I, I want to give you permission. There, you'll notice these stations. We, just so you know, the flow of how things work is each section is kind of unique to each station. And so we ask that you would go to the station closest to you. You can go to the carpeted areas and go out and around and then return to your seat. And then once everyone has been served, then we participate together, or at least that's how we'll do it today. And um, you may choose to wait in your seat and just really spend some time before the Lord right now, before you go and, and get the elements. Or it may be that you go and get the elements and come back to your seat and go, Okay, I, I have some calibrating to do, confession and repentance. That, that may be true. And so uh, we want to give you that time to engage. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we do love you. We are so thankful for your word that the virgin 
shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We thank you that you came and dwelt among us. We thank you that you are the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. We thank you, Lord, that you came, that we could have life, and we could have it more abundantly. Lord, just even now I would confess corporately, Lord, those, those sins that have kept us from following you. Those sins that um, some have, I don't know, they've, they've been sins of, of neglect. We just didn't know your word. So there's ignorance. And some, Lord, we're fighting. We don't want to do what you've called us to do. Almighty God, forgive us and convict us and help us to confess that for your glory. In Jesus' name.